Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Jews on Film. I'm Daniel, a film editor and documentary filmmaker and still a Jew. As always, I'm joined by my co-host, Harry. Hey, Harry, how's it going? It's going well, Daniel. Just like you, I am uh, still a Jew, last I checked. And also, former film major, current film podcaster. I could, I guess I could say that 10 episodes in. That's kind of, you know, a fair addendum to my title, to my introduction. So, uh, yeah, it's great to be with you. And of course, we're joined this week by our guest, uh, Eitan. So why don't you introduce yourself, Eitan? Hi, everyone. Yeah, good to be here. Uh, my name is Eitan Bossery. I live in Seattle. Big film buff. I'm an author of a children's book that is completely unrelated to the film we're going to be talking about tonight, but I love to love the creative arts and I, I love, uh, love movies. So happy to be talking to you. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, yeah, you, you, you kind of, you glossed over it a little bit, but this is a huge accomplishment. You just wrote a children's book. Why don't you tell us a little bit about it? Sure. It's uh, it's called the Persian Passover. It's a uh, illustrated children's book about Passover set in the 1950s in Iran, which is relevant to my family because that's where my dad is from. And that's when he grew up uh, before he emigrated to the United States. And so I was interested in writing this book because I have three kids and we hadn't seen any books. We have many Jewish books, but we hadn't seen any books that really showcased Persian life, particularly around holidays and things like that. And so we thought this would be kind of a fun project. And I didn't have any previous experience publishing, but I wrote the manuscript. I shopped it around to a bunch of publishers, got a bunch of no's. But finally, my wife, Sonia, turned me on to a small kind of startup publisher called Colonio based on the East Coast. And they were into it. And it's been a wonderful collaboration. They found an incredible illustrator named Rashin Feria, who herself is from Iran, but lives in Washington, D.C. now. And yeah, a couple of years here we are a couple of years later and the book launched uh, in time for Passover of 2022. And it's been really well received. And yeah, Daniel was at the one of the book readings with his, his family. And it was just awesome to, to see you and awesome to see the reception. Congratulations. Such a huge Thanks. accomplishment. And it's a great Thanks. book. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned that the book doesn't have much to do with your film choice this week. So why don't we just jump into there and move this discussion towards the movie? What was it about Midnight in Paris that you did that, you know, that you enjoyed and that you decided to bring it up on our uh, Jewish film podcast this week? I could draw the one parallel that I would say, you know, the, the book that I wrote was actually inspired by a film, an Iranian film from the 90s called The White Balloon. What was interesting about The White Balloon was how it it's a story that takes place on the eve of the Persian New Year called Nowruz about a brother and sister who have to basically have an sort of an adventure, misadventure on the eve of the holiday. If you look at Midnight in Paris, it's also very much tied into a place like so the the movie the white balloon is a, is set in tehran in the 90s and you you basically have this sort of a montage of characters who enter and exit the stage to move the story forward mm -hmm. and i think midnight in paris is also interesting because it's really even though there are characters and there's a lot of famous people famous characters uh, historical characters in the movie it's also very much set in the place of paris and actually in several, as people, for people who have seen the movie, it's set in several eras of Paris. That's right. And Woody Allen, in fact, even in his interviews about the film said, this is, this movie is really a love letter to Paris. I and mean, you look at the opening credits, even sure. it's an instrumental track that plays the great Sidney Bichet. And you just see like this, uh, it's like flipping through a postcard book of different scenes uh, around all around different parts of Paris. And yeah. So this is for this movie is for people who love Paris. And what I what I was really drawn to, I've, I've seen many Woody Allen movies over the years, 
some of them are, you know, where he's, you know, the main character, like Annie Hall, he's extremely neurotic, right? And and all of his movies really, to me, or at least the ones I've seen, really are like plays that just happen to be films. Like they're right. many, much of the staging, the dialogue, it's, it's, it's like there's a stage, like a stage play. What I was drawn to about this movie was, was the, one of the central themes, which is golden age thinking. Mm-hmm. The idea that the, the good old days, that things were somehow better in a previous era. And I think that in Jewish life and Jewish culture, that is a per, sometimes a very pervasive thought. It's in spite of all of the hardships and trials and tribulations that the Jewish people have ex- experienced over the last few thousand years, there's still this golden age of thinking. And we can, we can go into some of those, those examples uh, a little later on. Yeah, I mean, it's even invaded in like American politics, you know, like the whole Big notion time. of making America great again, like this whole golden age of of America. At one point, apparently it was great and we got to get back there. Here, I'll start with you. What was your golden age? Do you have one? I'm trying to think of like the eras that I would go back to, you know, as I've mentioned, you know, somewhat of a film buff. So I'd say there are definitely good eras of movies where I would have loved to sort of be contemporary watching things released for the first time. You know, the seventies comes to mind as just sort of a great era of film or, you know, even being around for some of the new stuff that was happening in the nineties. But I don't know. I mean, I, maybe I'm like getting the benefit of having finished this film. So I know that the kind of, you know, not to jump ahead too much, but the lesson is to sometimes appreciate the time that you're in a little bit more, but I'm right now reflecting on it, feeling a little bit content, you know, being here. And I mean, I know we've had a rough couple of years. The truth is if I could go back to any time, it would be like 2018 before all of this, you know, pandemic and all that terrible stuff happened. But, but yeah, otherwise I'm pretty content where I am. I think life is uh, for all of its troubles is pretty good right now. That's good to hear. Eitan, how about yourself? What's your golden age? That's a great question. I, I'm so thankful for modern medicine uh, as I answer this question. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But I, I would love to go back to like the Renaissance, you know, and, and I, what's funny is, um, can I get spoilers in this? Sure. This Spoiler point? alert. It's, it's mean, being I, issued I, I, right I, now, yeah, folks. I think, I think people should pause and go see this film before they, before they listen to this podcast. Or I think click it's, on it's it. fair to say that, right? Some of the characters in the, uh, I think it's Gauguin, in, in, in one of the scenes actually is saying that the Renaissance was, was the greatest time. Right. Right. And because it was such a confluence of art and architecture and culture and all these sorts of things. And in Italy, I just find, you know, I, I visited Florence. I find it, you know, it's fascinating. Of course, being Jewish and, the time of the Renaissance, you know, sort of a mixed bag, probably. I mean, the, the, the ghetto concept, the word ghetto is an Italian word. First place named a ghetto was in Venice. Mm. Uh, I don't have the exact date on uh, top of my mind, but like, so maybe I wouldn't want to be in Italy at that time. I don't know. It's, it's, I'm Jewish, I guess. I do remember that scene you're talking about at the end. I also feel like one of the other artists was like pushing back on his expression and saying, oh, but you'd also have like all these diseases and things like that. (laughs) So there's always a caveat. I think that's very true of Jewish history. You know, there's not too many eras you can pick in the sort of long, you know, reign of Jewish history where uh, there isn't some sort of attack, trouble, just, you know, bad things going on for some Jews somewhere, unfortunately. Oh yeah, totally. To reference a past guest, Jason Diamond, when we discussed City Slickers, we talked about nostalgia, which is a huge theme in this film. But I think something that resonated with me was, you know, you talked about, you know, the films of the 70s, Harry, but like, assuming you go back to the 70s, you also have to take you know, the whole 70s as a package deal. So you get all of the things yeah, that come with, you get <laughs> yeah. Watergate, you, you get, get Vietnam. you get it all. And it's like, <laughs> it can be a lot to take in. So I'm, I'm leaning towards maybe visiting other eras, sort of like Gil Pender getting picked up in a, 
car and getting whisked off for maybe a night to hang out with Scorsese and Coppola for a night and have a few beers and then maybe come back to present time. Well, you just made me think about another great film, which we're not talking about, but also set in Paris, Hugo, a great Martin Scorsese film, really fun movie. Sure. Partially about the invention of film. And, and a real homage to those first filmmakers and at least some of the first filmmakers in France right. who, you know, basically took a lot of stage methods and applied them to film, right? With, with the way they used props and the way they did all these special effects and things like that. And you guys probably can, can cite them better than I can. I, or I'm blown a blank on the names, but... The Lumiere brothers? The Lumiere brothers, thank you. To be able to spend a, a week back with them, right? And, oh, and sure. to watch them work, you know, to, to watch them create this new media. Uh, would be you know just incredible i mean i think they would be just as amazed coming to our time Aton, and you showing them about zoom and they would flip out right yeah, totally. sure totally. i think also it's on the way that you were just describing that you know sort of, sort of that very nostalgic scorsese film it's you know we're going to get into this a lot when we actually discuss the movie and at some point we're going to be teasing the, the discussion too much we're just going to have to move on to it but right. i definitely but i definitely think that like obviously you know owen wilson's character is a big analog for woody allen we're going to talk about that a little bit and it's sort of this filmmaker and the way you're talking about Scorsese making a nostalgic film and sort of revisiting and being there when it happened for the Lumiere brothers and like, you know, through his filmmaking, through creating a movie is like, it it does make it feel like, you know, what Owen Wilson is is experiencing is like the the whole concept of creating like a period piece and of like crafting an old movie. And it's like a, a chance almost to revisit a moment in past. And I'm trying to think of Woody Allen's other film credits, how many actual period pieces he's done. And I, I don't know them well enough. So I don't know. You know, I, I can't think of any and it's possible. I'm like missing, you know, a glaring one. Sweet and Lowdown. Like that's the one with Sean Penn where he kind of plays uh, like a Django Reinhardt kind of character. There's there's quite a few like there's a, uh, there's a few there, there was. Yeah. yeah. So it's just interesting. Yeah. So it just makes it feel like this film in some ways is contending with, you know, what does that mean to make that period piece? And what does that mean to sort of romanticize the past? And usually, and not, not the case with all, you know, old films, but usually kind of pull the pieces that, you know, really romanticize the past and that you kind of want to reflect positively on and often overlook some of the things like, like medicine we were discussing before and a lot of other, uh, you know, injustices that have existed throughout history. For sure. Before we get too far, Harry, do you want to hit us with that IMDb summary of Woody Allen's Midnight in Paris? Yeah, sure. I found a pretty brief one. It focuses on the Paris part, which I loved what you were saying before, Aitan, about Paris sort of being like, you know, a big, you know, just a big important part of the film. Like I would, I know when we spoke, Daniel, about uh, Licorice Pizza in our most recent recording, we kind of made the point that like the San Fernando Valley is like a character almost. Right. Like in itself. And I would argue that it's not just the case here where Paris is a character, but Paris is probably the like main character. And this is certainly, like, yeah. you know, I didn't need to hear that this was a love letter to Paris. I watched, you know, 50% of the film devoted to just sort of scenery in Paris and just Owen Wilson sort of glamorizing it. So it, it makes sense in the context of this summary, which I will, uh, I'll read now. It's a, it's a single sentence. It's a quick one. It reads while on a trip to Paris with his fiance's family, a nostalgic screenwriter finds himself mysteriously going back to the 1920s every day at midnight. We do want to recognize that there are aspects of Woody Allen's personal life that are controversial. And, you know, we're not going to be getting into that tonight. And we want to attempt to distance his art from the person. We're going to be trying to discuss his film persona tonight. And we hope that is sort of separate from him as a person. And with that, we'll take a quick break and we'll be right back. And 
we're back. Welcome back to Jews on Film. We are here with Eitan Bassery, acclaimed children's book author and all-around cool guy, to discuss Woody Allen's Midnight in Paris. Came out in 2011, starring a who's who of, of character actors and, and also big screen actors. But our main cast is Owen Wilson, his fiance Rachel McAdams, and then we have other folks like Kathy Bates and Corey Stoll and Thomas Hiddleston, Adrian Drew Brody and all these other folks, but we'll get into it. You know, I wanted to, you know, you talked a little bit, Aton, about the opening scene, how it's kind of a love letter to Paris, and we just kind of get into it. You know, I think we start with Gil Pender. He's there with his fiance. They're on a sort of a, a pre-wedding trip with the in-laws. Any thoughts on, on, on the film as it starts? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think my notes, I mean, I took copious notes when I rewatched this. This film is really four acts. Yeah, I told you this is like a play, right? There's really four acts in this play. The first act is we're just learning, getting to know the characters and we're introducing some tension here. And you get that tension, I think, from more or less the first scene. You see that there's like this, you know, character who is in love with the city and the people around him are not. <laughs> they, they are not really impressed with, with this place. He's like, oh, I could just walk around here all the time. I, by the way, I, I'm going to forgive me. I'm going to do a lot of Owen Wilson impersonations. I thought we might, yeah. <laughs> I, I thought sorry. he was in the Zoom with us. That sounded going awesome. To, going, you know, <laughs> they're, they're going off and they're they're going to Versailles, right? And by the, oh, it's also hilarious the way that they all try to say the French correctly. Like we're going to Versailles. Everybody wants to affect the perfect French accent, which is fantastic. So we're really just starting to know. And of course we have this very pedantic character, right? The the, the third wheel, right? Uh, Paul, what an Paul. asshole. <laughs> I hate that guy. You just, he's a character you just want to punch, right? But we all know a Paul, let's be honest, right? Oh yeah. Oh, he's a great caricature I found. I, like a lot of the him. side characters in this film, I think. He's Mr. Yeah. Um, actually. You know, he's yeah, that guy. Absolutely. So it's rough. I mean, Paul starts out. I don't even I'm trying to figure out what the backstory is. Did Paul and Inez go to school together or do they know each other from somewhere beforehand or are they just kind of like couple from? Yes, I think it seems like they have a connection. I, I it may have been mentioned in the movie. I can't remember, but it seems like there's there's something there. You know, throughout the film, Paul is throwing out all these things about art and culture. And, you know, I think one of the themes that sort of struck me as the film goes through is, is at least in the present day and to, to some extent as well in, in the, in the golden age is sort of high culture, low culture, you know, Gil alludes to the fact that he does like these Hollywood pictures and his in-laws are kind of shitting on his work. Uh, I think there's a scene later in the film where it's, Oh, it could have been one of your films, you know, that we saw and it was, you know, it was fine, whatever. Whereas Paul portrays himself as this Mr. High culture pronouncing Versailles and talking about all these obscure facts about artists. And it's only later in the film when Gil, you know, after having gone back in time and actually seen the painting that Paul points out, does he actually try to one up Paul and give this whole actual, dissertation on on the intention of the of the painting where Gil sort of transcends being a lowly Hollywood screenwriter to like a established art critic sort of I mean maybe that's a stretch already but you know you're onto something and I think there's also an element here of seeing Paris from two different lenses it's like when you go visit somewhere are you there as a tourist or are you trying to see it as a local yeah and Gil really represents like the person who's the local like he is in love with this place he doesn't care if it's raining he doesn't care he wants it to be raining 
he doesn't care about any of the glitz or glamour. Like there's one point they're in like some fancy furniture store and he could care less. He doesn't care about the wine tastings. He doesn't, he just wants to walk the streets and, you know, hang with, you know, he just wants to hang. He's there for the hang. And, and these other folks are like, oh, well, we're going to go this tour is here. We're going to go there. We're going to go here. You know, and he's sort of like, you know, he was, to be fair, he was really into Giverny when I guess they, you know, they went to Giverny and he was really into, you know, seeing where yeah. Monet you know, was hanging out, but, right. but that's not really what motivates him here. He's really about, you know, immersing himself in the city. Whereas everybody else is kind of looking in on Paris, like, you know, trying to like make sure they hit all the spots and make sure they know all the facts. He's Gil's trying to like feel the city. You know what I mean? I mean, I feel like, like you said, the tension is sort of there right away. Inez and her folks are, are very clearly there to do the things, but they're also very, Gil seems like a pretty modest person, whereas they're like very bougie and fancy and they're going away for the weekend. And he just, like he said, he wants to kind of saunter around. And it's on one of these sort of midnight walks where he goes to kind of clear his head and get creatively inspired because he's theoretically um, working on a new, oh, he's working on a novel. Right, 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 right. So it's a novel it about a guy who, who, who owns a nostalgia shop, right? Right, right. There and it is. that's, and I think it was even at the scene in Versailles where Paul goes. You know, nostalgia is denial. Uh, denial of the painful present. Oh, well, Gil is a complete romantic. I mean, he would be more than happy living in a complete state of perpetual denial. Really? And, the, and the name for this fallacy is called golden age thinking. He's basically saying, you know, you have, your sentimentality is basically you're not accepting your current reality. Right. Right. I mean, that's, there's some truth to that. I feel like for someone to just like disregard their current situation and just like run away every single night to just meander and then eventually go back in the past, it's not so great. But also to some extent, Inez does the same, you know, she's going out dancing with Paul and they kind of slowly drift apart. Spoiler alert, you know, they don't make it in the end, but it's on one of these walks that Gil goes around and sees a very old fashioned car kind of out of place with all the other things going on there. The car pulls up, opens up, and I believe it is Ernest Hemingway himself, F. Scott Fitzgerald and Zelda Fitzgerald who are in the car and they tell him to come inside. So he goes inside, he zooms away with them. And there we are. We are back in the 1920s, I would say. 20s, I think, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so he's now hanging out with a who's who of 1920s artists and writers. One of my favorite scenes, he's like, he like loses it. He's like, <laughs> like Zelda's like. You have a glazed look in your eye. Stunned, stupefied, anesthetized, lobotomized. <laughs> like the Fitzgeralds, the Fitzgeralds. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, yeah. <laughs> Such a great scene. That Alison Pill is playing Zelda Fitzgerald. Thomas Hiddleston, a.k.a. Loki, is is playing uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald and Corey Stoll is uh, playing Ernest Hemingway. I felt like Corey Stoll's Hemingway was terrific. Like I, I really, I really loved his delivery and the way he just like, you know, I've read some Hemingway. I imagine that's probably how he acted and talked, you know, for sure. Like, I haven't read Hemingway and I don't know how he sounded, but I'm, I'd like to think he sounded like Corey Stoll. <laughs> yeah, totally. Oh yeah. Very, very macho guy. I, I like that you bring up the macho guy because this feels like a good place to talk about the sort of character of, you know, Owen Wilson's Gill character and the, he's not Jewish in the film itself, but 
Uh, we mentioned this at the top, and I think it's worth repeating here that he's clearly a stand-in for the Woody Allen persona. He's a screenwriter, and not only is he, you know, this sort of screenwriter who romanticizes Paris in the way that Woody Allen, you know, has described, but he's also, I think he embodies a lot of the, you know, the sort of classic Woody Allen persona, kind of like nebbishness, kind of. And we've spoken about this. We've, we've isolated in other films and that a little like, that like snarkiness and that like smartest person in the room. But the one thing I'll, I'll point out with the Hemingway is that it's a big contrast point to that caricature, to that sort of persona that where, you know, that sort of like Jewish Woody Allen. I mean, Woody Allen is literally like, you know, we're not talking about the films like, you know, Annie Hall, where he actually is embodying that figure. But but that is kind of this like Jewish persona that has like that has prevailed and as sort of this like Jewish character in film yeah, is like really kind of a stereotype. Yeah. He's playing yeah, so yeah, like, I'm, but I'm saying he is the stereotype Woody Allen. Yes. So it's, it's cool to see yeah. Owen Wilson kind of giving his take on it. But I think when he's with Hemingway and like you said, this very macho man, that was the first time that I really felt like, Oh, that's the kind of character that Gil is because he's, he comes off much more like effeminate, much more timid, much mm-hmm, more right. of like that sort of nebbishness yeah. in contrast to, you know, Hemingway's very just like, like and he says it a bunch he's like you're not like a man like this is what a man would do you know a real man would go hunting and box and yeah but at the same time he says like writers are competitive i'm not going to be competitive with you you're too self-effacing it's not manly if you're a writer declare yourself the best writer but you're not as long as i'm around unless you want to put the gloves on and settle it part of this movie what's cool is like in a way like he's getting into his own head right like in the film he's traveling back in time but Gil is actually getting inside his own head. He's discovering his own inner Hemingway, like mm, that's that strong, sure. ki- that strong guy. Right. And he's like, right. I do want to be a right because spoiler, when you get to the end of the film, he does have confidence and he does know what he does have conviction. Right. So he kind of experiences, this is where he starts to discover his, himself. This is, so this is act two, right? He's discovering himself. He's discovering that he wants to be strong like Hemingway. He's discovering that he wants to, be, have you know have fun and hang out with uh, other artists right and things like that and not just be a not be considered screenwriting very low art I, yeah, I don't even know if he's a screenwriter and he's like a um he like helps fix screen well, like a script uh, doctor uh, i think there's some allusion to, to oh, that interesting kind of a, uh, think, script, yeah. a at, at some points he says he doesn't want to spend too much on furniture because then he's going to have to take up all these like script doctoring like, roles yeah, and yeah, he doesn't yeah. want to do that he's clearly not artistically satisfied in his I get that right now. And and he thinks that being a novelist would, because that's who he respects. He respects the great novelists. And that's why he's so blown away by, by, by these folks. So do you feel like it's a, like a journey in some way that with each successive artist that he meets, whether it's a writer or a poet or a painter, he kind of gains a little bit. And by the end, he's like a fully formed, fully realized Gil. I think it's like you said, where like, I think of like a scale on the, at the beginning of the film, his nostalgia outweighs his sense of the present. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. And you know, Inez calls it out. She, she, she says people who live in the past, people who think that their lives would be happier if they lived in an earlier time. Ah, and just which era would you have preferred to live in, Miniver Chibi? Paris in the twenties, yeah. in the rain. You know, she kind of summarizes his whole thinking, right? Because he's right. so romanticized that as you get through the film, it starts to actually. The scale starts to balance out where now he builds his own confidence, right? And, you know, Gertrude Stein, you know, reads his book and, you know, he gets all this encouragement. But at the same time, he starts to learn more about the artists and their and their failures, like Picasso and and all these artists. And he's like, you know, there's one scene, one of my favorite lines, he goes, Okay, I come from the 2000th millennium to here. I get in a car and I slide through time 
Exactly correct. You inhabit two worlds. So far, I see nothing strange. Well, yeah, you're surrealist, uh, but I'm a normal guy. You know, he's, <laughs> he's talking to, to, to Man Ray and, and, uh, and Dolly. And, you know, it's like my, my, he starts to see the humanity and the, the, the reality, quote unquote, reality of these people that he'd put on a pedestal. And he's like, hey, these are just, or, these are just ordinary guys, you know? As a result of, of time travel, he's able to say, hey, you know what? That, all that nostalgia I had, that can, I can have that nostalgia without canonizing these people, right? Without thinking that their lives were so perfect and that the time they lived in was so perfect. And that's what, at the, when, you, when we get to the end, uh, there's sort of that closure. I do think that all fits in with what you were talking about earlier with the uh, high art versus low art. And that's sort of oh, like yeah. Paul, cause, cause I think that's similarly, you know, obviously Gil is the character that we find nostalgia, in, but I think in some way all the characters are. So I, I think Paul, when he's sort of putting up, putting these past artwork on a pedestal and kind of like he create he crafts his whole personality around just like, you know, knowing a lot about these people and trying to be very pedantic, like we were saying. And I think the, the scene that highlights that, that distinction, like what you're saying about humanizing these people is like when he's talking about the Picasso and he says, oh, this is this like beautiful expression of, you know, like his art, like his artistic sense of like who she was. And Owen Wilson's like, well, if I'm not mistaken, this was a failed attempt to capture a young French girl named Adriana from Bordeaux, if my art history serves me, who came to Paris to study costume design for the theater. And I'm pretty sure she had an affair with Modigliani, then Brock, which is how Pablo met her, Picasso. Of course, what you don't get from this portrait is the subtlety in her beauty. She was just a knockout. In the scene when we saw Owen Wilson kind of talking to Picasso and Gertrude Stein about like right. the painting, like it actually feels a little more crass and a little more sexual and a little more like not necessarily the same kind of high art, you know, elevated like nostalgia like sizing of, you know, this great painting. But it might just be, you know, Picasso really liked the way she looked and did this, you know, weird thing that he kind of put together and like just kind of restructuring how they think about the past and how, you know, Owen Wilson and how Paul can serve to like, think about, you know, how these guys created it also, I think, you know, breaks down the illusion of nostalgia that everything back then was perfect and better. Like it wasn't it, you know, this high, low art messy. mix. It's like, it all messy. of it was messy. Exactly. Exactly. That's exactly what I'm trying to say. I mean, I think seeing, you know, Zelda Fitzgerald wanting to jump into the Seine river or, you know, seeing, Ernest Hemingway try to go away with uh, one of the characters and then failing to do that sort of seeing their cracks in their veneer, I think definitely helps humanize a lot of them for Gil. And we should say that as Gil is going back in time and, and hanging out with these artists, he does come back the next morning. And so what happens in the film is we sort of get a structure of present day past present day past. And I, you know, I'll save it more for my end of review, but I felt like, the more compelling stuff is obviously the stuff that is in the past because that's where all the cool characters are. And the stuff in the present day sort of just helps kind of move Gil's present day life, move that story along and sort of drift, have them drift further apart and have Inez come closer to Paul and Gil kind of drift further away. And it kind of sets up some plot points later on in the film. I did want to like talk about the different people who are portrayed, you know, the golden age characters that we talk about, you know, so we saw, we mentioned Hemingway, F. Scott Fitzgerald, uh, Salvador Dali is played by Adrian Brody. We have Degas, Gauguin, Toulouse-Lautrec towards the end, Picasso, 
and really a lot of a lot of interesting characters. And I thought sort of seeing some of these folks who you ordinarily just see like pictures of, you know, seeing their characters kind of running around Gertrude Stein's apartment and in real life was kind of a cool thing. I don't think it was intentional that there's all these Jewish um, people like mentioned in the film. Like Gertrude Stein is obviously Jewish. I don't think she was. I don't know how much she identified as Jewish, if right. at all, sure. uh, in, in real life. Man Ray. was Jewish. I didn't know Man Ray. Oh, but Man Ray was I Jewish. I think too. so. I'm going to look that yeah. up. I might um, think that up again. Modigliani yeah. for sure. Uh, also probably not super religious. But he's, uh, but he's referred to as Jewish. Like I, I forgot what she Jewish. calls him. He says like her Jewish. This nice you know, Jewish, that Jewish Italian painter. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Exactly. Um, Man Ray is Jewish, yes. Yeah. So it, I'm, I don't, I'm not saying that like, like obviously he chose the 20s. Like it's not like he like placed Jewish artists in this intentionally but the reality was there were a lot of jewish people in the arts i don't know how far back that goes but certainly in the 1920s in paris i mean that was part of the scene right and i think it's interesting that we've continued to see jews in the visual arts to the present day obviously in hollywood but in many other areas as well i mean you're an artist and you're jewish you're a writer that's an art come on (laughs) sure give yourself some credit you know yeah, and I, I think just continuing the thread about sort of Owen Wilson being this kind of like Woody Allen, Nebish Jewish stand-in and just kind of highlighting a lot of these Jewish artists that were back at the time. And like like we've been saying, this thread of kind of like bringing down to earth some of these very, you know, rev- like reverential, these very like masculinized like characters. I think as much as when you were describing before about, you know, Owen Wilson's Gill, he has to kind of learn to become a little bit more, more manly, more confident and like kind of shed his, uh, his nebbishness a little bit. Mm-hmm. I do think that part of the shattering this illusion of nostalgia is like learning that a lot of these characters aren't these just like gods on pedestals and that they are also a little bit more awkward and a little bit more, you know, quirky. And I think when Owen Wilson kind of introduces his like, you know, sort of smart ass character and his like, you know, his like a little bit awkwardness to like hang out with them. Like they all kind of like, they love him for it. And, you know, Gertrude Stein ends up loving his novel and like these characters really like flocked him. So I think, you know, I do think that this character as much as like, he is like the way for him to kind of shatter his illusion about the past is in some ways to shed some of what I would call the Jewishness and in some ways to kind of just introduce confidence to that, but invite that into his reflection of the past. You know, it's a sort of like more Jewish reading, I would say of, uh, of, of this past and of like, you know, of the characters that existed so loftily in his mind. Yeah. I feel like he fit in a lot more in the past. He just felt like a fish out of water with Inez and her family. And even with Paul, like, I think maybe that's the idea that he like belongs in the past, but then he realizes towards the end, Oh, actually, like I need to be myself in the present and not maybe be in this environment where I don't feel comfortable and I don't feel good. So, you know, among other reasons, maybe that's contributing to why he left Inez. I think so when we get to act three, this is like basically where Adriana, who is the new love interest, Mm. finds out that Gil is actually engaged. This is where we enter act three and she leaves. She's like, I need to go. She's like, I'm out. (laughs) Which is also funny because like, her character is like super chill on like, um, you know, polyamory. Extramarital affairs. Yeah, yeah. Like I didn't, I don't know why she's getting all like moral. All this, like, so, like he's not even yeah. married yet. <laughs> she's played by Marion Cotillard. Who's amazing. In this. Yeah, yeah, she's great. Uh, <laughs> it is. That's a good point. I didn't think about like, that. Why is she getting all like highfalutin now? Like, first of all, he's not married. <laughs> like, yeah. This is true. But I think she was just really hurt. Right. I mean, like he thought she would, she thought he was all into her and I mean, now, he, yeah he, and he was but like totally you know, maybe he's playing double game here and like she wasn't down with that 
so she leaves and then he's you know freaking out he finds out that she this, i love this part he picks up a book off at a, uh, at a bookseller oh yeah that turns right. out to be her journal which he then gets translated and finds out that she is into him and that she has some dream where he gives her a pair of earrings and then they make love right Boom. so this is where like really this is like one of my favorite parts he goes back to the hotel room and he grabs his wife's earring or his fiance's earrings to give to her and this is the most quote woody allen unquote scene of the movie totally where enter stage left right in comes inez and her parents they're back early gil's freaking out because he's about to get caught he doesn't know what's he was she's like why are you wearing cologne and daddy's having heart heart chest pain and they call him the doctor and then they think that the, everything starts to come in like a rig like the perfect woody allen play like all of a sudden the doctor comes in and they're reporting a theft and he's like why do you, you can't report a theft you know you can't accuse people of these things it's so perfect i just love that scene so much I thought it was great. I think the like the, I noted here that the physical comedy was yes. terrific of like the doctor coming in and him Gil running to the bathroom to for setup just he has taken his fiance's earrings to give to Adriana with the hopes that he will uh, consummate his relationship with her as foretold in this journal and just as they're coming back early from a trip he's got these earrings in a bow in a box in a bow and he needs to somehow get it back into the bathroom. And it's like you said, it's it's very slapstick and comedy, but everything, you know, the shit hits the fan all at once. And I could have used a little bit more of that in the film, to be quite honest. I felt like it was, you know, as you described earlier, kind of like a school play where just like character after character, do a couple of lines, exit stage, you know. What I love about his writing style in those scenes is it's so tight. You've got two to three conversations happening at the same time, and they're just layered. Like in, on the right. script, they're just layered, layered, layered. Like it's so dense on a single page because it's like, what, right? One person's like, I want to report a robbery, and the other person's talking to the doctor. Blah, blah, blah. Most of the movie, and what I, I think I like about the movie is it's actually a lot more like relaxed. Like the rest mm -hmm. of the movie, the, the pacing is way more slow Not and so steady. Frenetic, for sure. Not so frenetic. Very European and I don't French, know. you know. Maybe true. Actually, that's a good point. So they have that, and and finally he makes it back to back to Adriani. Finds her at a, at a at a party, and she's actually happy to see him. They go on a walk. They sort of you know reconcile, and sure enough, uh, a horse a horse and bug horse and carriage shows up, and they invite them to come on in and have some champagne. And where do they end up? They end up in La Belle Époque. There right? you go. Described as eighteen seventy to nineteen fourteen, according to Wikipedia. So and and I did look up the exact year for when Toulouse Lautrec would have been you know active. I think we can assume late eighteen hundreds. Sure, let's go with that. They meet Toulouse Lautrec. They meet Gauguin. They meet Degas, and they have a cool conversation. A pretty cool conversation. And Adriana decides that she wants to stay. She's like, this is what it's all about. She's like, I'm in this. By the way, I don't know how that works. Like in this in. Right. In, in this, this sci-fi story. Yeah. Sci story, I don't know how that works because he, Gil's always getting booted out. Like when he, le like when he leaves, he's always coming back. So I'm not sure how she stays. But well, as long as you just, maybe don't get back in the car, maybe that's, maybe that's like the sure. thing. No, because you remember he left when he walked out. Oh, that's of, true. He walked out, he came back and it was a laundromat. That's true. In that one scene. He's like, I'll be right back. I'm just going to go get my book. And then he, you know, anyway, so it's okay. You know, it's a, it's a fantasy movie. So whatever, somehow right. Adriana's staying. <laughs> and, and, and he says to her, he, he has the moment of clarity in act four. And he says, I was trying to escape my present the same way you're trying to escape yours to a golden age. Mm -hmm. You know, 
And, and that's where he has that. He just, it's that total realization. And he's like, I get it. I get it. I, I'm, I can live in the present. And then these the perfect lines. I had a dream the other night where it was like a nightmare where I ran out of Zithromax. And then I went to see the dentist and he didn't have any Novocaine. You see what I'm saying? They're, 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 these people don't have any antibiotics. Very Jewish. Oh, totally. <laughs> Concerned about health. Concerned, is exactly. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. The neuroses. And, and by the way, we're talking about antibiotics. I have to make a, a couple uh, uh, product placement comments. Uh, Zithromax. Mm-hmm. Novocaine, I think, is in there. Valium. Uh, well, not Valium. It was a it was a knockoff of Valium. Was it? What was it? What it was. It? I forget. But I asked my wife, who's a nurse. Okay. Shout out okay. to Yafa if you're listening. <laughs> but it wasn't Valium because I was like, oh, what's this pill? And she's like, oh, it's probably just like a stand-in for Valium because it's like okay. a copyrighted drug. Uh, okay. Uh, okay. Got it. Yeah. No. Um. He offers uh, Zelda something. Uh, oh and, yeah, that's uh, right. She yeah, does take yeah. one to kind of yeah, like calm so, yeah, down. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot. I mean, again, this is very much the neurotic Jewish, you know, Woody Allen type character, you know, with all these medical spilkas, you know, but it makes me laugh. I, it was like, I always kind of guffaw every time he has these you know, uh, pharmaceutical references. <laughs> yeah. You know, when, while we're on the topic of like, you know, neuroses and, and medical stuff and, you know, there is a scene if, if we backpedal a little bit, you know, I forget wh- after which visit it is, but maybe it's the first or second time he's, he's, has visited Hemingway and F Scott Fitzgerald. He comes back to bed. Inez is like, you know, rolling and falling asleep. And he's just like up in his pillows. Like, I'm Gil Bender. I was with Hemingway and Picasso, Pablo Picasso and Ernest Hemingway. I wanted to talk about like this notion of Gil just constantly saying what he's feeling. There's no sort of um, guessing to be done. You know, he's when he's talking to Man Ray and Dali and uh, Luis Buñuel, he, he's telling them his whole moral quandary and dilemma. And I wondered if this is a common Woody Allen trope to kind of say what you're feeling and, and really talk it out. Or is this unique to this film? I think it is. I mean, I, I was in a Woody Allen play in, in college uh, called God, which is funny. Not, I can't say my performance was funny, but it is a funny play. <laughs> and I, I, I think that there's quite a, I definitely remember that from Annie Hall and the, the movies that followed after Annie Hall. There was a, there's a lot of, I don't know, it's a verbal exposition about like what's happening. Right. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense in this film where I think a lot of like the actual mechanics of the plot are like very secondary. You know, there's mm-hmm. not a lot of explanation for how this is working and what the actual right. rules are. There's, I don't think there's so much depth given to most of the characters outside of Gil or even with Gil, but I think his family is like a lot of just not, not in a, like a dismissive way, but just definitely like characterized a little bit to just be like, you know, the, the, you took Beyonce the word character. I, I, I think, think I everybody's think... a caricature except for Gil in this. Interesting. In this yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. And it gives the movie like this very, like, it's not trying to get very deep. It's not trying to be very challenging. I mean, the, the movie itself with all of its, with its beautiful music and with all of its kind of those like setup shots, like all, all through Paris kind of thing. Like, it's just, it almost like floats along and it really, it grounds you in the individual scenes and you're supposed to be like Gil, I think just like, you're so, so overwhelmed in, in, in a way. Yeah. It's you know like, I mean? like, this is cool that we're all like the way that, you know, Gil's character, like you said, points out everything he sees. He's like, Oh look, there's like, you know, Zelda. Oh my God. There's like Hemingway. And he's just like calling different names out there. Like, Wow. I think you're supposed to just, yeah, like you're just supposed to be kind of like involved in it. And it's like a rum cake. You need like some lady fingers and some alcohol and you just soak it in. You need like, when you watch this movie, you should have like rum cake or like tiramisu and then you should have a glass of wine. 
red wine. Exactly. You just sit back and soak it in. I think you're exactly right. Like, I really think that the style of the film is very much like uh, just like soak it and let it wash over you because I actually think that it's intentional. I think Woody Allen is trying to get us to like, kind of fall not like victim in a way to the same, you know, sort of overhang of nostalgia and just like watch these old characters and be like, whoa, this is cool. Like Paris really was incredible. Like, you know, until Gil starts questioning, like there's no, you know, medication here. Like there's no, like there are actually some flaws living in the past. I think you're also supposed to feel like, okay, we're like with the annoying family and like, whatever, like, when are we going to get back to going to the past? When are we going to get back? That's how I felt too. When can we just like watch? And I think, and I think that's the point. I think right. he's setting us up for the same sort of trappings that, you know, the same nostalgic trappings that I think Gil falls through, through I think, the, the scene that we're describing where all of a sudden it's like, wait a minute, like, I, I can't get stuck here, you know, like right. it'll never end. He says, he says it there. He's like, if, if you like, if you stay here and live here full time, then eventually you're going to find another golden age that you're going to want. And you're always going to be looking for something else. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's after Adriana decides to stay that Gil goes back and, you know, he has his final scene with Inez where Inez has admitted that she had slept with Paul. And, you know, she says, oh, you know, it's the Parisian way. Don't make a big deal out of it. Let's still get married. And he says, you know, I'm done. I'm, I'm going to live in Paris. The, the in-laws come back. He gets to say his last word to them. He walks off in his pressed khakis and nice button up shirt. And he, he walks out, you know, he's done. And, you know, throughout the movie, he keeps going back to a record shop and he's chatting with the record shop attendant and they talk about Cole Porter. I think he had seen Cole Porter earlier in the film. So he yep. kind of makes yep. that distinction. And then again, brings some sort of insight having had been there in person. But, you know, he runs into the record store clerk and, you know, they kindle a romance, you know, because Adriana's back in the past and he's back in the present. They walk together away in the rain. And that's the end of that. Lea Cidu, by the way, does Lea an Cidu, amazing yeah. job. Uh, she's great. And she was in uh, Glorious Bastards as well. Uh, she's a great, great actor. She's been in lot. I mean, she's been in lots of stuff now by now. But this was one of her, I think, one of her earlier roles, Gabrielle, she plays. And uh, that was so interesting, by the way, hilarious that they made it in 2005, that a person who's working as an employee of a antique shop could live, be in walking distance from the central part of Paris. Oh, right, like, right, she, right. she was like, she's like, Oh, I'm just walking home in the rain. It's like, yeah, no, you're not walking <laughs> to, to, to your home. If you've got that job, but Paris is very expensive. Like, sure. Yeah. Very I'm, expensive. Like mm-hmm. she would be on a 30 to 40 minute Metro ride away from, from, from uh, the center of Paris today or in 2005. There's one other notable role. So the, museum attendant who kind of calls Paul like pedantic and you know the one who reads Gil the journal is Carla Bruni who was married uh, to uh, Nicholas Sarkozy also Jewish yeah or Nicholas yeah, Sarkozy's former president, former president was, yeah, of France like, yeah I think he had one at least one Jewish parent I forget I forget which one was part Sarkozy's Jewish, Jewish yeah oh nice not so, that has any bearing on this <laughs> no no so why don't now that we've discussed the film in its totality from start to finish why don't we Take a quick break and we'll be right back and we'll discuss our ratings of the film. So welcome back to Jews on Film. We are discussing Midnight in Paris this week and now we're going to go into some of the content, themes and production of the film and offer our rating on a, on a scale of one to five Jewish stars. 
So, um, uh, Daniel, do you want to start us off and, sure. you know, throw out some ideas about how Jewish this film you felt was? Sure. Yeah. As far as the cast and crew of the film, obviously Woody Allen is Jewish. There are folks in the film who happen to be Jewish, but I don't think we're cast because of their Jewishness. Adrian Brody is Jewish. God Elmaleh. So he's, he plays, he plays a bit part. He's a, a very famous French comedian. He plays the detective who gets trapped in like Louis the 14th French era, but uh, he, he's Jewish. Uh, you mentioned Kathy Bates was Jewish. Beyond that, I don't know of any of the other people like Alison Pill or Corey Stoll or Thomas Hiddleston. I don't think any of them are Jewish. Um, oh, Kathy Bates' character. I don't know if she's Jewish. Oh, yeah, true. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. true. So yeah, maybe points for someone if the character is Jewish, but I don't know. I'm not sure how the, the ranking scheme works. You know, I think as always, Willie Allen produces the film with his sister, but I, I think... Overall, that is that is my report for the cast and the crew. As far as the content, Harry, what do you think about this film? You know, we, we spoke a little bit about like the Jewish persona behind it all. And I think as a Woody Allen stand in that kind of brand of comedy kind of becoming synonymous with a sort of Jewishness, this Jewish character or this Jewish kind of character type um, that we've seen throughout a bunch of films. I think that there is a little bit of a Jewishness there. I think it, it exists with his character. I mean, Owen Wilson, you know, you were talking about the... Uh, like the cast and crew and Owen Wilson is not Jewish, which is an interesting choice, you know, because for us to sort of map on all this Woody Allen Jewishness to him, right. you know, to not put that on a Jewish actor does kind of undermine that a little bit. But I still think that there is a Jewishness to it in terms of like the actual, you know, story itself. Like right. we, we mentioned, you know, Modigliano is like sort of the, his name is mentioned as being a sort of Jewish figure, but there's not a lot of explicit Jewishness. I, I'm excited for us to kind of move into the discussion of the themes because I think that there is really where I would isolate a lot of the Jewishness of the movie. But um, sure. in terms of the content itself, I don't think you would want, you could watch this front to end and walk away thinking like, wow, that was a really interesting Jewish movie. Right. What do you think about that? Uh, Eitan? Do you agree? I agree. I think, I think this is a, happens to have some Jewish characters and happens to have some Jewish actors, but fundamentally has some meaningful Jewish themes or, and themes that are meaningful to Jews. Right. So when I think about the aspects of like the, one of the first things I was like, who, when I think about golden age thinking, who has the most, who in the Jewish world today has the most golden age thinking? I think it's the Hasidic community. The okay. Hasidic community dresses in as if they were in, 17th or 18th century Europe with all black. Mm -hmm. they, they speak Yiddish, which is a language from Europe. Mm -hmm. They maintain the traditions, the cuisine, and they revere the Rebbe's from a previous generation. Right. right. And it's endemic to the entire Hasidic community. Like it's, it, it is the way that, that, that things are, are observed in the Hasidic community. And I think in, it, I can't say, for example, I've never asked a Hasidic person, do they wish they lived in Poland, you know, 200 years ago? So I, I don't I don't know if it's as literal that they have nostalgia. But I do think that there are certain people who in the Hasidic community who would say that the academies of Poland were uh, you know, better than 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 what we had. Or maybe that the the, the temple, right, the time of the Beit HaMikdash in, in Jerusalem was the peak and pinnacle of Jewish history, right? And that's why we're striving for the Messiah and all these sorts of things, right? So if there are certainly religious aspects, even if you take out the Hasidic aspect or uh, the, the Eastern European aspect, aspects of Orthodox Judaism, aspects of Hasidism that yearn for a return to temple times, to, to temple service with the priestly caste and all that kind of stuff which is a big theme in, in, in traditional Judaism, uh, it's, it's definitely there. 
Yeah, I mean, I would take it a step further and maybe it's time to bring out that little stretch because I feel like, you know, all of Judaism for some extent, you know, the prayers that we do, the holidays that we have, it is nostalgic for the times where we would bring, you know, food offerings to the temple or when we would celebrate certain cyclical things in, in, in Jewish, in the Jewish, the golden Jewish era, so to speak. So I think, you know, for sure, the Hasidic community, I think you're spot on, Eitan, but I think we could also, you know, zoom out a bit and apply that to a lot of the Jewish tradition, for sure. Just in terms of applying that to uh, to the overall like tradition, I think, you know, whenever we're talking about religion, Judaism, any religion, but, you know, obviously I'm more familiar with Judaism and its relationship with the past, but, sure. you know, a certain amount of nostalgia for the past is kind of necessary as to... to create a tradition for there to be a sort of tradition or an entire religion focused on customs practice that are kind of carried on throughout, you know, generations. It's almost like we, you know, the, the whole basis for, you know, religion is sort of continued practice passed down from ancestors. And I think like what you were saying with Hasidism and just, you know, generally like we have a certain reverence for, you know, not only, you know, like the, the Torah, the Bible, like the, you know, the original script and, you know, that was, you know, we believe was published, you know, years ago, but even just all the the history of, you know, tradition and, you know, sort of rabbis and laws that were created, like all of that stuff, because we're still abiding by things that were created and we're, we're holding in great reverence, I think, you know, traditions, customs outlined by our past, there's necessarily a relationship with nostalgia, with tradition. But I think what this movie captures and what I think we were talking about with Gil and kind of his journey to kind of recognizing you can love the past and revere the past, but don't dwell in that kind of use that to motivate you, you know, take what mm. you can from Hemingway convert, like, you know, use that confidence, but use that to kind of advance your own story so that right. you don't just get, get stuck there. Like as this religion, and I would speak from, you know, my experience, my relationship with Judaism, as it has kind of evolved over, you know, generations and adapted to modern times and kind of been very forward looking. I think that, you know, it has cultivated both, you know, a, a deep reverence for the past and also like leverage that into, you know, sort of an outlook for the future. So I think that's kind of a complicated relationship with the past and how that informs, you know, the present, the future action is necessarily a part of any kind of religion. But I did feel, and, you know, this, this could be a stretch. I'm not sure if there's the takeaway that everyone would have gotten watching this, but, you know, it definitely felt very Jewish to me and how it sort of evaluated, you know, what role the past plays in informing the future and how the past is important. I think it's more important than characters like Inez give it, where they're just like, oh, I don't want to think about that. Let's just dance and forget anything. Cause the past is very important to Judaism, to Judaism, to Jewishness. But I think it, you know, understanding how that can motivate us going forward is, is kind of crucial. Totally. I think well, I think you, you, you hit on something really interesting, which uh, we were talking about, I talked at the top of this about two lenses for Paris. There's like the tourist lens versus the local lens. Mm -hmm. So Inez is like the person who sees history through a, a glass box, like at a museum, right? Something that mm -hmm. is encased and is there to be looked at. The same yep. thing with Paul, right? He's like pontificating, right? right? He's like the person who who reads the the whole description on the casement uh, in the in the museum artifact, right? But what Gil wants to do is live it, right? He wants to live it. He wants to go to the parties. He wants to walk the streets, right? And I think that's that's that that also is the theme of this idea of like Jewish restlessness a little bit, like like somebody who wants to be doing hustling, you know, like that's that's very much I think been part of Jewish culture and also the chutzpah, like Gil. For sure. What does he do when he finds out that he can go talk to? to uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald, he asks him to read his book. That takes, that's like, who yeah. is this guy? like, who the heck has seen to ask him to read his book? 
I don't know if uh, I don't know if all cultures have that level of forwardness that they right. would if they meet their literary idol, they would be like, "Will you read my book?" And then he takes yeah. it to Gertrude Stein. Oh. And he's like trying to get trying to get notes from Gertrude Stein, right? So so there's definitely an element of chutzpah that um, you know it. It maybe maybe everybody. I don't think everybody would do that. I think I think Gil's character is a Jewish character who who has no reserve, has very few reservations about uh, engaging in this world of, of of artists. He's able to go to the past, interact with these different characters, and like I said before, kind of. And we could go stretch alert here, but you know he's like he's learning with different rabbis, or you know, or different uh, you know getting different texts and, and studying and, and with each person gaining a little bit until he becomes sort of this, you know, Voltron like character where he's bringing all the pieces together to be, assume his final form of, you know, the, the mensch gill and, and to, to really assume his place as a person who knows what he wants, who asserts his, you know, position in life, cuts out the toxicity you know, is able to write a really good novel that Gertrude Stein likes and is able to meet a nice young lady on the bridge and r walk around in the rain with her. So, you know, now that we've talked about the film, I want to, I want to talk numbers, you know, let's talk talkless and let's see what everyone's ratings were about the film. Uh, Harry, you want to go first? Sure. I think in reflecting on the kind of things that we mentioned, you know, the, obviously the content, the Woody Allen-ness of it, like that's, you know, an automatic star. You're, you're talking about a Woody Allen movie. It's an automatic star, possibly even two stars, honestly, because I think he's a very, very, you know, despite, you know, a lot of the stuff that we referenced before with his uh, complicated past at this point, but he's, he's certainly an important figure in the Jewish movie scene. But um, in terms of the movie itself, you know, one of the metrics that we've kind of mentioned in the past is the sort of blockbuster, you know, question, which is like, if you were right. walking into a blockbuster, kind of where would this be? Uh, where would this be found? And I think this is more of a period piece, more of a Parisian love letter. I, I don't think this felt like such a Jewish film. So if I, if I was giving it a ranking, it would probably just be like, you know, one and a half. I think it's one star for Woody Allen and maybe another half star just because I thought the themes really could be Jewish. But they weren't necessarily Jewish. So because I, I think that those questions of nostalgia in the past, you know, that that's a little bit more universal than that. So I think I feel comfortable with a one and a half stars. Uh, right. How about you, Daniel? Who well, just to it? answer your question, uh, according to IMDb, uh, it would probably be in the comedy, fantasy or romance section. Yeah, well, so. that sounds about right. I want to give our guest Aton the ability to go sure. next. Go ahead, Aton. Oh, I didn't know we were doing half stars. I was thinking that too, uh, for the same reasons <laughs> that, that, that Harry said. I mean, there there are some very there are some Jewish themes. It's not really a Jewish movie, uh, but I felt like coming on this podcast, it would be fun to sort of you know analyze it and 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 do all that. So I didn't want to pick something that was so overtly Jewish. I thought it'd be more fun to. Uh, to pick yep. and, and and dissect uh, one of my favorite films, uh, which I, I figured I could I could pass would could pass muster on this show. That was one question that I was curious about, like of Woody Allen's canon, why you chose this particular film as opposed to something more well known like Manhattan or or you know Hannah and her sisters or something like that. I think I've I've I visited Paris many times uh, over the years for work, and I felt in love with it and. The film captures some of the things that I love about Paris. Not okay. obviously minus the time travel, of course, but I found that just walking around the streets, just like soaking it up, going out to cafes, just being in the city itself is just a great vibe. And yes, it's very expensive. Yes, it's loud and crowded and, and all those sorts of things. 
but uh, it is a cool, cool city. And the, the, the sort of um, sensibility in Paris is so different than, than in where I live in Seattle. It is a, it is a sort of, there's a sort of sensibility that like, I don't care how late at night it is. We can have another glass of wine. Right. I hear that. Yeah. I've, uh, I was in Paris as well and I have like family there and I am studying Duolingo trying to get better at my French, but, uh, I would like to go back there at some point. Um, as far as like my rating, I think I'm, I thought I was going to be the heel of the podcast. Cause you know, in full disclosure, I talked to Harry a little bit earlier today and he was really hyped on the movie and I was a little bit more, you know, reserved with my compliments for the film. I like, you know, I thought that overall, you know, the characters were great individually. And I thought like overall the story was fairly simplistic, but I think you said Aton, that's sort of by design. My overall rating for how the film, how Jewish the film was, was probably in the neighborhood of where you two were talking about, you know, somewhere between one and one and a half, two stars. But like I said, I thought, I thought you, Harry, honestly, I thought you were going to come in a lot higher. Aton, I thought you were going to come in higher too, because you suggested the film. You know, I was ready to be booed off stage here, but I guess I'm sort of in line with where you guys are. Maybe I'll go like one and a half stars, two stars. Yeah, it's not a super Jewish film for me, uh, other than the Woody Allen-ness and sort of Gil's, you know, we're, we're kind of putting this Jewishness on him, but he, by all accounts, is not a Jewish character other than his son of neuroses. So, yeah. This is a, this is a movie from, I think, 2000. 10 is it 2011 yeah uh, 2011 and i mean there in the last 11 years since then there have been plenty of of films that would rank as more jewish right sure. and and i sent you daniel a few uh candidates when i was thinking about about sure. coming on i just thought you know it's it's easy to have an obviously jewish film and and analyze it and and you should do that you but but that wasn't what you know yeah, what i thought would be fun would be to take something that's not obviously jewish and to really Dis disassemble it and look at its its parts and figure out hey what's what's really under the surface here uh and it is a it is a simple but beautiful film and on that i wanted to thank you Aton bassery for being here tonight on at jews on film i wanted to ask where can people find your book you can find it at uh on amazon you can find it on barnes and noble if you're in seattle you can find it at third place books hope people will uh check me out check it out and enjoy it are you working on any new books in the future that you'd like to share about? Is this an exclusive? I am working on a book. I'm working on a book. It's uh, it's also set in the old country, so not Iran, but another old country in the Sephardic community. And uh, it's also based around a holiday. I haven't finished writing. I'm in the middle of writing it. So I look forward to sharing more. Ooh, awesome. Is it about Tunisia? <laughs> it is not about Tunisia. Ah. So close. For those who are unaware, I am. Uh, my dad is from Tunisia, so I thought I'd get a shout out there. All right, Harry, anything to plug at this time? Nothing to plug. I'm excited to check out both your books. Can I plug something for you, Harry? You were, you were talking to me at synagogue a couple of weeks ago about your schnitzel recipe, and I wanted to know if you could share that with the with the folks because, like, you dropped a a bomb about how you prepare schnitzel. 
you know what? This, this wasn't a longstanding tradition. This was something I had happened to be trying the one day that I spoke to you, but I then ended up eating the schnitzel. It was very good. I will tell you the secret that I worked in this time was I, uh, I mixed some honey into the egg, into the egg yolk, and then kind of used that as like a binding agent for the schnitzel. And, um, it added a good flavor to it. I'm excited for everyone to get up to this late in the podcast and learn some, uh, some new cooking tips. And if you do it and you try it and you like it, let me know. That, like I said, that blew my mind. I never thought to put honey in, but I'm going to definitely try it out. But yeah, Eitan, Harry, thanks so much for discussing Midnight in Paris. And thank you, the listener, for listening this far into the podcast. Check us out. We're now on TikTok, apparently. Thank you so much, Harry. Uh, we're on Instagram at Jews on Film. And like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you soon. I got to get a, uh, there's a car waiting outside for me. It's going to take me back to the 1920s in Seattle. So I got to run, but I'll see you guys later. Thanks so much. Jews on Film is hosted and produced by Daniel Zana and Harry Ottensaucer. Daniel Zana edited this episode. Make sure to follow us on Instagram at Jews on Film and subscribe to our podcast to get new episodes. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.